Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me back again this week as usual is Jimmy Hoover. Hey, Jimmy, how's it going? It's going great, Natalie. Uh, glad to be back from, from parental leave and really diving into the deep end here. Um, you chose as, a good week for it. <laughs> yeah, right? We have you know, a huge set of cases that we're going to be breaking down with a special guest later, and then obviously next week we have a action-packed week of oral arguments and and there's been lots of news in the interim so let's just you know let's just get into it just dive into the deep end like i said um trial by fire uh what do we have on for the for the day so some folks might be realizing that they're listening to us a bit later than usual um we are actually recording this on friday afternoon and that's because today in a bit of a unusual a set of circumstances, the Supreme Court is actually holding oral arguments. Um, and specifically, they're hearing two blockbuster arguments this morning regarding vaccine rules and mandates. So we are welcoming in a special guest to help break those down, uh, senior employment r- reporter Vin Guerreri, uh, who covered the first set of arguments. Vin, thank you so much for, for joining us on the show today. Hey, guys. Happy Friday. Happy uh, argument day. Um, glad to be on. Just a sleepy Friday for you, Vin, right? Yeah, nothing's happening today. So can you give us kind of uh, kind of lay out the landscape for us? What was happening at the court today? Absolutely. So uh, firstly, you mentioned that they're holding oral arguments on Friday, which almost never happens. That's a unique thing right off the bat. Um, so it ended up being over three hours of arguments where, where we've got four cases and we've got two different sessions of arguments that are looking at two separate rules that were recently issued by the Biden administration regarding uh, vaccines at work. Um, They're not necessarily both mandates, but they both deal with uh, the uh, growing obligation of employers to have to potentially require people within their workforce to get vaccinated. Well, let's let's take the first one. Um, Can you break down uh, what is the particular rule at issue in the case NFIB versus Department of Labor, which has been consolidated with uh, with another case called Ohio versus Department of Labor. What's what's that rule? Yeah, that one deals with a rule by the Occupational Safety and Health Administration. That's the sort of sub-office within the Labor Department that deals with workplace safety issues. Uh, that rule's two-pronged. So one part of it, employers have to either adopt a vaccination requirement for their workforce. And to be clear, it only applies to employers with 100 employees or more. So they can either opt to go the vaccination route or they can opt for having weekly testing of their workforce. And if that's the case, they also have to make sure that any unvaccinated workers in their workforce are masked up at work at all times. So this is in, I guess it's not fair to call it a mandate if they have the option to also do or to otherwise do testing, but it's a big deal, right? I mean, okay, maybe it applies to um, employers who have 100 employees or more, but that's like, that's a lot of people. Uh, Yeah, you're talking uh, somewhere around 85 million, give or take, which is uh, (laughs) pretty much almost everybody, honestly. Uh, It's a good chunk of the workforce. Um, And actually, the question of whether it's a mandate or not came up during arguments this morning and during some of the briefings. Some of the states and the different trade associations that are challenging the rule have sort of framed it and categorized it as a mandate. 
the federal government been uh, gone out of its way to say it's not a mandate because employers at the end of the day do have the option for weekly testing. So, uh, you know, they don't have to have their workforce get vaccinated. They could choose to, but not necessarily required. So that's sort of one of the idiosyncrasies that the justices were having to work through and, and, you know, figure out the extent to which this even is a mandate. So tell us about this this other rule, because there were two other consolidated cases that involved a, a different administration rule aimed at kind of ramping up the vaccine efforts of the American workplace. What's going on in that case? Yeah, that one deals with the uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. And the gist of that one, it, it was issued in tandem with the OSHA rule. The difference is that one applies only to healthcare facilities and other, you know, sort of healthcare related uh, employers that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding. Uh, that one, you know, that that's not a small one either. That deal that will end up covering somewhere in the neighborhood of 15, 17 million workers, give or take, uh, somewhere in that neighborhood. So it's maybe a little bit narrower in some respects from the OSHA rule, but you're dealing with, you know, tens of millions of people that would be covered by that one as well. The big difference between the CMS rule and the OSHA rule is that CMS is not including the testing alternative. So for healthcare facilities that are covered, their employees, their staff, they would be subject to a vaccination mandate. So big, broad implications for these cases and also very timely. These are going into effect like next week, right? Uh, the OSHA one is due to take effect on Monday. So Supreme Court, they uh, they better work quick, work through the weekend on that one and figure out <laughs> what they're going to do with it. Um, uh, to specify, the entire rule doesn't go into effect on Monday. Uh, the majority of it does. So um, certain things that employers would have to do by Monday, if nothing else changes, would be to have a uh, have a plan in place for how they would roll out uh, either a testing mandate or a vaccination mandate, for example, uh, workers would unvaccinated workers would have to be masked at work starting Monday, assuming nothing else changes. Uh, the big thing that doesn't go into effect on Monday is the testing requirement. That one is due to take effect on February 9th as of now. But all of the other sort of uh, you know smaller details of OSHA's rule, uh, those take effect next week if the Supreme Court doesn't do anything. So we're going to spend today's conversation really drilling down on this OSHA rule, which, as you say, applies to, you know, over 80 million American workers. It's a huge deal, and it was the subject of a really intense discussion by the justices this morning. I tuned in for for large parts of it, and, and it, it's been a while since the, the justices have been that animated with uh, over such a incredibly, you know, uh, impactful issue that they can kind of feel in their everyday lives. So let's just... Dive right in, um, Vin, and tell me, what is what was the big takeaway from today's oral arguments, which went pretty long? Yeah, it's interesting. So this went over you know, almost two and a half hours. You know, that that is a long time for the justice <laughs> to be holding uh, one of these sessions. Um, one of the interesting things is that they're not supposed to, you know, justices can do more or less whatever they want, but they're not actually dealing with the merits of the Biden administration's rule itself. The uh, question, the issue before the court is whether or not to hit pause, whether or not to stay the OSHA rule while 
uh, the different legal challenges to it proceed. Now, in in practical terms, there may not be that much of a difference because people have to go get vaccinated uh, as per you know an employer's choice. If an employer decides to adopt the vaccination requirement because of the rule, that's not really something you can take back. You know, someone goes to get a vaccine. That's it. It's it's done. So, you know, in a weird kind of way, the justices are sort of balancing this issue over whether to stay the rule with, you know, the actual underlying merits of whether OSHA had the authority to issue it in the first place and whether, you know, uh, the rule itself is even constitutional. So there are a lot of these sort of just competing things that the justices are dealing with all at the same time in the context of what's really just whether or not to uh, issue, effectively issue an injunction. So Vin, before we dive into how the justices felt about the case, just kind of back up a little bit and tell us, you know, who are who are the challengers to this um, administration rule and, and what are they arguing? So it's important to distinguish that we have two different sets of challenges to the OSHA rule here. On one side, we have a couple of dozen industry groups and trade associations. Their main argument is that this will adversely impact uh, all kinds of different businesses and all kinds of industries economically. They're going to lose money. They will. They could potentially lose sales to businesses that fall under the 100-worker threshold, and a lot of workers could quit if they don't like the vaccination mandate or even the testing option. On the opposite side, sort of on the same track, but, you know, sort of on the side here, we have a couple of dozen different states. And they're not arguing so much from individual employers' perspective. They're arguing from the perspective of state power. They believe that it should be left to the states if a state wanted to adopt some sort of uh, requirement similar to what OSHA has, it should be the purview of the state to be able to do it and not from an agency within the executive branch. So what were some of the big moments from the justices' conversation here and, and arguments? What, what, what really stood out to you? Okay. So, I mean, one of the big arguments here was whether or not this qualifies as a, you know, quote unquote, grave danger, which is sort of the the threshold that OSHA has to meet for to be able to issue this kind of rule in the first place. And the justices were, were I mean, they were really on, on different sides of the fence on this one. Justice Breyer multiple times was uh, highlighting the recent surge in coronavirus infections over, you know, over the past week, over the past month. Um, he kept throwing out the number of seven, 750,000 infections just yesterday alone. So he was stressing the urgency of, uh, how it would be in the public interest for the Biden administration's rule to go into effect, to encourage more vaccinations in light of uh, what's really a, a sort of major, one of the biggest waves of infections that we've had in the two years since pandemic started. Um, Justices Sotomayor, Justice Kagan were also similarly uh, sympathetic towards the Biden administration's approach here. Um, I think Justice uh, Kagan, multiple times, she kind of pressed the trade association's lawyers on, on, you know, why this isn't, you know, a good approach, given that so many people have been infected and so many people have died over the past two years. 
some of the other justices, they got maybe a little bit more technical with their arguments. Uh, Justice Alito expressed a little bit of uh, you know, reservations about whether the sh- shortage in testing over the past few weeks could in any way undermine the testing aspect of OSHA's policy, which is sort of a legitimate question. Uh, the Solicitor General kind of tried to address it. She said something to the effect of this was an issue OSHA looked at and OSHA concluded that there is enough testing available to uh, for employers to adhere to the requirements, but sort of left the door open a little bit to the agency potentially reevaluating its stance and taking new information into account if if there's any new information that warrants a change in its position. So there was a lot of talk back and forth between the justices and the attorneys and even indirectly between the justices themselves about, you know, what level of an emergency COVID-19 is and, you know, to what extent the Biden administration's rule goes to address it and the extent to which it even had the authority to address it. Right. And if the court needed any reminder of, you know, how close this is hitting to home, I mean, first of all, it's the court's been closed for the last two years since the pandemic started. So they are no stranger to how this has kind of completely rocked the American workplace. And I think just today, Justice Sotomayor participated in arguments via her chambers, not wanting to even enter into the courtroom. She's obviously, you know, a lifelong diabetic with pre-existing conditions that puts her at risk from COVID-19. But beyond that, we also had um, you know, two uh, appearing attorneys, Ohio Solicitor General Ben Flowers and Louisiana Solicitor General Elizabeth Merle, who dialed into the hearing by phone. So I guess that's all just to say that, you know, maybe underscore the kind of urgency of this situation in which some of the justices are approaching this is when you when we heard from Justice Breyer, like, you know, there's three quarters of a million cases just yesterday alone. So the urgency in his voice was pretty clear. But, you know, this is not going to just come down to the three liberal votes, um, uh, Breyer, uh, Sotomayor, and Kagan. Um, there's obviously, you know, a conservative faction on the Supreme Court right now. We heard a little bit from Alito, which you, which you just mentioned. Um, but there are other concerns as well that we heard from the, the conservatives. Tell me, Vin, about this um, this point about the major questions doctrine. It seems to have, it came up multiple times um, at oral arguments today, and it seems to be a sticking point among some of the Republican appointees on the court. Yeah, specifically uh, two appointees, uh, Justices Kavanaugh and Gorsuch really spent a good chunk of their time sort of trying to home in on, on that question. So the major questions doctrine, that, basically says, and this was an argument that the challengers to the rule were making in their briefs. Uh, Essentially, if an administration agency's policy implicates major questions or or questions that have wide-ranging impacts, Congress needs to speak clearly to say that they have the authority to address those issues. They can't sort of, uh, they can't lean on vague or ambiguous sections of statutory authority that they have to issue these, you know, sweeping policy pronouncements. So Justice Gorsuch, Justice Kavanaugh, they were trying to kind of get at whether OSHA 
had enough of a mandate from Congress to be able to issue these, you know, sweeping COVID-19 policies. Like you said, you know, we said at the top that, you know, you're close to 100 million workers could potentially be affected by this. So that became a sort of point of contention among at least a couple of justices that sort of seemed to be searching for a way uh, within the text of uh, existing statutory authority itself to be able to uh, figure out an answer to some of these questions about whether the Biden administration's rules should take effect. Right. This is the this is what I I think Anton the late Antonin Scalia uh, referred to as the elephants in mouse holes uh, mouse holes doctrine that Congress doesn't generally hide an elephant in the form of a uh, of a you know quote unquote vaccine mandate that it would apply to over eighty million uh, American workers in kind of a vague. Uh, provision of of the OSHA law, so that's at least the argument from from that perspective. And I don't know, Vin, what do you think? I mean, is could Kavanaugh be a decisive vote? I mean, it sounds like there's going to be there's three median justices on the court here, any one of whom could potentially tip the balance, um, either for or against um, Biden's, uh, you know. I, I, I hesitate now to use the word mandate because you pointed out that there's it's a it's a vaccine or test mandate. Um, but but tell tell me a bit where are the others uh, uh, median justices coming at this this question from? What did you hear from, for instance, Barrett? Yeah, it's you know as you guys know as well as anyone, it's tough to read these tea leaves and these oral arguments some of the time. Um, from Justice Barrett, she uh, seemed to. She was struggling a little bit with the question of a couple different questions, but one in particular was the extent to which an emergency can last. Like, at what point is it no longer an emergency anymore for, you know, emergency COVID-19 regulations to take effect? Um, She was a little bit tough to read. Uh, I think she and Justice Roberts, if I had to take a guess, could be uh, the two that decide this one way or another. Um, again, that's sort of uh, just speculating a little bit, but they seem to be the ones that didn't really tip their hand as much as some of the other justices as far as where they may land. Uh, maybe Justice Kavanaugh as well, depending on you know what he thought about some of the answers on the major questions doctrine that we were talking about a minute ago. So they, they're in that middle tier of justices that their votes... Uh, either in combination or any one of their individual votes could end up be the deciding one. Yeah, I've, I've been seeing some commentary here that Justice Roberts feels like uh, there's there's a takeaway that he's coming down hard. But uh, I, Vin, I, I think maybe you have a, a bit of a different perspective on that one. Uh, yeah, I mean, he seemed, it, it depends on which portion of the argument you want to pay most attention to. Uh, he was pretty, uh, he, he was pretty, tough on some the trade association's lawyer at the start of the argument, but he was also somewhat tough on the solicitor general towards the end of the argument. So that might be a situation where, you know, you can kind of hear what you want to hear in <laughs> some of the questions that the chief justice asked. Um, I think if you take it in total, uh, I, I mean, I wouldn't want to place a bet one way or another on which way he would land. Uh, 
based on everything that he said during the hearing. So I don't know. Um, your guess is as good as mine on where he ends up coming down on this. Yeah, he generally he. I mean, he's been an interesting one to watch with these um, COVID nineteen cases because this isn't the first you know uh, legal issue that has sprung up out of the pandemic, and he's generally seemed to side with public health officials um, in their implementation of rules to contain the spread of COVID-19. But this one is kind of a variation of that question because it involves such a sweeping effort from, you know, the federal, the executive branch of the federal government. And one argument that the challengers are making is that under our constitutional system, that states have the, the kind of the police power to enforce some of these mandate the vaccine or test mandates as opposed to um uh the the, the executive branch so it, it it's going to be interesting I, I i'm going you know after oral arguments i kind of felt like roberts was really uh leaning against the rule but after i heard you make your case now i'm gonna have to go back and listen all over again uh to see which way i think he's leaning but i suppose we'll f- probably find out soon enough i mean if this thing kicks into effect on monday we might hear from the supreme court before long yeah sooner rather than later maybe um they might have a long weekend ahead of them and i suppose maybe one for you as well but (laughs) i don't want to i don't want to put that on you Vin. one for all of us we're all in (laughs) the same boat all right well thanks so much Vin, for coming on uh the show really appreciate you talking us through you know hours of oral arguments in this very complicated if fast evolving situation um really appreciate it anytime thanks for having me so i think we'll all be uh basically at the edge of our seats all weekend just to see what the supreme court does if it comes out with a full ruling or just an order kind of giving them more time and and delaying things in general um my thinking probably the 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 order but who knows uh jimmy jimmy what are you thinking we're supposed to have orders on monday right uh, yes, we are supposed to. I mean, the court has a conference today um, at, during which they're discussing a lot of potentially explosive cases that they could be taking up um, on Monday. Um, and you just you have to imagine that it's a pretty tight turnaround, to, especially considering they spent three hours debating these issues today. I mean, we a thought we were going to get a, yeah. We thought we were going to get a really fast turnaround in that Texas SB8 case that ended up taking a couple months. Um, will something similar happen here? I don't know. Maybe the timeline is a little bit um, different considering the, the the different nature of the case. Uh, either way, you know, the, we're going to have arguments next week. Um, and I basically, there are th- these are the moments where I think to myself, you know, I'm glad I'm not a Supreme Court justice (laughs) (laughs) you and me both uh there's a lot for them to digest through and and a lot riding obviously on these cases as per usual with supreme court cases right um but yeah we'll see what happens i think that just about does it natalie thanks for uh for chatting today thank you and thanks to our listeners for tuning in we'd like to thank our producers steven trader and kelly marcano and executive producer Amber McKinney, special guest today, Vin Guerreri. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 and the term. Thanks for listening.